Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. You see? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. You see? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Hello, everybody. Uh, today we're joined by Neil Curtis, who is an associate professor in media, film and television at the University of Auckland. He's the author of numerous books, War and Social Theory, Against Autonomy, Leotard Action and Judgment, Idiotism, Capitalism and the Privatization of Life, and editor of The Pictorial Turn. And his most recent book is Sovereignty and Superheroes, uh, which was came out last year with Manchester University Press. Uh, thanks for being with us, Neil. Uh, how are you today? Um, I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'd like to begin um, by talking to you a little bit about your uh, intellectual background and your influences. So you kind of work somewhere between philosophy, culture studies and uh, media theory, I guess. So I'm wondering uh, what I mean, what are the sort of the key intellectual influences that have uh, gone into the formation of that? Yeah, well, I, I suppose my cultural studies, um, my my cultural studies degree, uh, really formed everything for me because we did everything from popular culture to uh, philosophy on that on that degree. So we had courses on. Where was that? Oh, uh, that was um, it was called North East London Polytechnic, um, ah. but it's now. The University of East London, I suppose. Um, so yeah, we did uh, political theory and aesthetics. Um, there was a lot of Marxism, of course, because the whole course was run by a group of people um, from what was then called the New Left. So uh, Catherine Hall, who was Stuart Hall's wife, um, and Bill Schwartz, and and people like that. So it was really. Um, amazing time so it was a very philosophically based cultural studies that I did so that was that that was the start and then I became fascinated by Althusser um, and then later sort of moved on to um, French post-structuralism I suppose uh, did a PhD on the work of Lyotard used that to sort of challenge um, uh, American liberalism um, then got quite into Heidegger for a while. Um, and it just sort of, I, but I do everything. I just go, I'm like a magpie, so I just go wherever I see something shiny. I just go. <laughs> and, uh, you, you, yeah, I, I know you from, uh, Nottingham really, cause you were, yeah. you used to work at my, where I, my current employer, Nottingham Trent University, I think. And then That's right. you moved to University of Nottingham. Yeah. And then you moved to, uh, all the way across the world to the University of uh, New uh, Auckland in New yeah, Zealand. Yeah. Can I can I ask uh, why why did you make that transition transition to New Zealand? Um, it was probably a midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, I uh, I say to people it would have been much easier if I just bought a motorbike. Um, <laughs> cheaper <laughs> no, probably. Cheaper as well, yeah. No, I I I don't know. I think I was just trying to escape the Tories. Um, <laughs> that's all. That's all I can say. Uh, I mean, they'd been in for about a year, um, and it was and it was clear what was going to happen. Um, I think the great con con trick after the financial crisis had been completed, and it was completed very very fast. I think within a week, if not a fortnight, where they'd gone from you know the collapse of a of a virtual collapse of the capitalist system. And sort of casino, uh, casino financial sector. Um, they lost all the money. We bailed them out. Then it, the narrative turned to that means we've got no money. That means that we can't pay for public services. That means we can't afford public services. That means that public services are, um, invalid or a problem or illegitimate and all the rest of it. So it was the most in my life. I don't think I've seen. A more explicit, open, and quite brilliant 
ideological move. It was it was staggering, I think. So and I suppose no, go on. Well, um, yeah, I, I think it was just because that we left in two thousand eleven. So when did the Tories come in? Two thousand nine. Twenty ten. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Um, so I think at that point we realised that everybody's or a large percent of the the population have fallen for this manoeuvre and this propaganda. And I just felt like we needed to get out. You know, I had family this side of the world, so that helped a little bit. But uh, of course, ah. the, of course, the problem was you just end up leaving one bunch of Tories and ended up with another bunch of Tories. So. I meant to ask you that. Uh, I mean, was is, uh, this is? I mean, a lot of the things you talk about are global problems. I mean, has the transition to New Zealand uh, meant that there's uh, been a, a, a different political? Um, trajectory? Um, no, not really. Um, this country's been, been run by the National Party, which are the equivalent of the UK Tories. So they're, um, they're sort of socially liberal to some extent, but they are completely anti-anything public. So they're um, sort of arch neoliberals and the country's been run for the last 10 years um, like in the UK as a kind of a machine for making the rich already you know the, the people who are already rich more wealthy um, so all the money's been moving up um, massive inequality here poverty youth suicide um, we just had a co-leader of the Green Party Materia Toure uh, who's a um, a Maori woman who tried to talk about problems of welfare and lack of support and poverty, and she came out and admitted that um, she defrauded the benefit while she was a single mum. And you know the whole it opened up a whole discussion about benefit and poverty, and basically a whole a gang of middle-aged white men just went after her and um, she had to resign in the end even though the current prime minister who's a middle-aged white man had also taken some kind of benefit for housing or something um, to cover his mortgage while he was um, a minister in John Key's government and, and that that money he shouldn't have taken that was fraudulent um, but it doesn't seem to have stopped him being a minister and now prime minister because technically it wasn't illegal right there was some kind of loophole but okay because, so yeah yeah so um i mean this this really sort of bespeaks the things that you're interested in in your research because mm. um i guess one of the key themes that you deal with is this idea of idiotism right yeah and uh that's characterized, and correct me if I'm wrong, by a retreat of the idea of the public, a retreat of the idea of the common. Um, yeah, completely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and like, so I, I maybe like sort of to try and tease that out a bit. And I mean, in, in your book, you talk sort of really eloquently about this, about the idea of neoliberalism. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to try and start just with that term. And I'm going to ask a very general question, which is, what is neoliberalism? Uh, and how does it lead to idiotism, I guess, uh, or how you understand idiotism? Okay, uh, neoliberalism is an economic dogma, I suppose, um, an ideology, a set of theories based on the primacy of the market and the idea that the market creates efficiencies um, that uh, any kind of interference or regulation by the state creates inefficiencies and to create the best possible economy you need to remove the state, its interference and its regulation, um, and let the market do its work. So it's a, it's a counter to the Keynesian economics that came out after the financial crisis and the depression in the 30s, where, because capitalism is so unstable, goes through cycles of boom and bust, you bring the state in to uh, mitigate, I suppose, those sort of low points and try to sort of dampen down the high points to sort of 
so you've got a, a more of a a kind of a, a gentle kind of wave pattern of up and down rather than a sort of huge depressed depression and massive tsunamis that constantly um, wreck things um, so the idea is that that's that, that's one that's one aspect the other aspect then is that also because the market's the most efficient thing and the best way to produce everything um, everything effectively needs to be put in private hands everything needs to be opened up to the market so any sort of public service um, or public uh, resource um, needs to be sold off and placed in private hands so that the market can do its wonderful work there um, but as we know that's a complete myth you just up, end up with if you look at the British transport system uh, the rail services you know you end up with um, massive increase in prices um, a pretty appalling service um, and huge amounts of money being siphoned off for, for shareholders um, I think there's more money going into the British um, train system now more public money now that it's been privatized than it was even when it was a public utility so yes yes and slight and sleight of hand so so from those two principles I, I then wanted to talk about to sort of try to develop a concept that sort of catches everything because because the other thing I suppose the third component is the cultural component which is the the domination of the individual over the public. So everything, a sort of a culture in which we think individually. So we, we, we look after ourselves. It's very selfish. It's supposed to be responsible, but it's not really responsible. Um, the sort of mentality of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, that sort of stuff, and a sort of anti-welfare um, identity through consumption, the display of commodity, right? So... It, it, it becomes a really uh, broad ideology and practice and it becomes increasingly dogmatic because once you've got to 1989 and the end of history, there then becomes no alternative, right? Um, yeah. So for me, idiotism, from the Greek word idios, meaning private, it's the, it's the extension of, 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 of the private to every aspect of social life or the privileging of the private to every aspect of social life. And of course, the, right. the, the, the idios in, in Greek is also an, an enclosed area. So it also fits quite nicely as a concept with that practice of enclosure, which would be the old term for taking what is common and putting it into private hands. So it, it just became a nice, it sort of occurred to me one day while I was hanging out the washing that <laughs> it, it, it was a, it was just a really nice term for talking about a really complex problem, you know, in those sort of three three areas of kind of macroeconomics to um, public public service or, or the role of the public, and then that sort of privileging of the of the individual, the private um, commodity consumption, and so on. So. Yeah, cover, that makes a lot, a lot a lot with it. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, uh what I mean what you refer to as the privatization of life uh in your book. Mm. Um I mean that that does relate absolutely back to the ancient Greeks. I mean the idiot was or the idiotes I think it was was uh mm. they who do not participate in politics, you know, no. or they do not participate in pub, public life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was the um and that's where the, 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 I think I explained it in the book. This is where the sort of, sort of pejorative of idiot comes from. So if you didn't participate in public life, then you didn't have specialist knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, you only had the sort of average common everyday knowledge. Um, so gradually that we lost the sense of the private, although it's still, we still retain it in words like idiosyncratic and idiom, right? Um, but the idiot increasingly came to stand for the person who doesn't have specialist knowledge. And then it just grew to somebody who was stupid. And of course, I wanted I wanted that echo of the pejorative there because I think the whole system is stupid. Um, but I didn't particularly go down that route. I didn't think I needed to. I just 
I like the fact that 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 common meaning of the term was there. I didn't need to explicitly talk about it because we do live in in an entirely and utterly stupid system. Um, okay. It drives me mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, one of the sort of one of the indexes I always have on this is uh, you know Foucault's uh, sort of later work on uh, neoliberalism and biopower, mm. and when Foucault sort of uses the word biopower at a very elementary level, I understand him to mean um, uh, human entrepreneurialism or the entrepreneurialization of the self. Yes, certainly. That's yeah. That's that's one aspect in terms of yeah. There's a kind of biopower in idiotism that is about the the disciplining of minds and bodies through the commodity form right that's and and through yeah i suppose a certain entrepreneurialism where we all have to be self-starters and we all have to be self-promoters <laughs> you know um and you see this through social media quite a lot you know social media arguably does that kind of disciplinary work right um, it turns yeah so you have a kind of a performance of the self yeah yeah absolutely it turns us all into sort of mini um self-branders and uh, and public publicists and so on um so so yeah i think you know that that's at one level and then at the other level it just has you know a huge tranche of the of the population that it just physically exploits you know, I mean, in the states now, there's certain there's certain states within the United States that are still trying to get rid of minimum wage. You know, um, so to use a a Heideggerian term, you just have a, a group of the population that's just a sort of large sort of standing reserve of exploitable labour, right? Um, who are desperate for work and will do anything at any at any price, right? Um, so those those are the the two ends of neoliberal biopower, I think, and um, it's not healthy. It's disturbing. It's not good for society. And I think got... um, following on from, I mean, you mean, I mean, Heidegger does feature a lot in your work. I mean, you've yeah. you've uh, you've you've touched on him a lot, and I think uh, one of the examples you use is, I think, you talk about the smartphone, and you kind of adapt Heidegger's terms and. And you, you, um, as an example of idiotism, the smartphone yeah. might be a good example. And you use this lovely term called that tra tranquil busyness. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, could you explain that a little in the context well, of idiotism? Um, Heidegger uh, always believed that boredom was really important because he, he argued that at times when you're bored, what's actually happening is that there's a, there's a, the significance of your world or the meaning of your world is starting to fade or you're beginning to, beginning to question it. So times of boredom, you know, you sort of, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Who am I? What, you know, why am I sitting on this train station? Right. So you start to interrogate things when you're bored. And he says that boredom is therefore very important if we're going to uh, interrogate ourselves, our society, think of a new way of doing things, a new way of practicing our life, carrying on with stuff. Right. Um, he says, but what what happens to counter that is everywhere we're asked to be busy, right? We're constantly entertained and preoccupied with stuff, so that we we never have time to to think about why we're doing things and what we're doing and 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 who we are, and so that and that produces a kind of um, passivity, isn't quite quite the right word which is why I used a certain tranquility right is it sort of um it's comforting to be busy right you're sort of totally occupied with your life and your world you're totally immersed in it um and that way your world doesn't really become a problem um so yeah in idiotism i was just beginning to think about the ways in which uh, uh technologies new technologies might might contribute uh, to that and of course um, if you extend that out to the role of 
algorithms and a kind of algorithmic life that's perhaps in training us all towards certain types of behavior through social media and types of consumption then yeah it becomes a new a new form of uh social engineering almost um so that's what i meant by that by that term um we need periods where where we're not busy so that we can think outside of what we do okay so if idiotism then speaks of a sort of debasence of self um what is the alternative or what for you might be an enriched sense of the self that participates in common life rather than private life yeah well i think it's a different sense of responsibility i think it's a responsibility for others i think it's i think that that for me is where you get the enrichment is that kind of engagement with a different uh, community different people different ways of being you know you engage in this sort of biodiversity of human life all the different worlds that people imagine and create the different value systems belief systems um uh, and you know we face massive problems from the local up to the planetary and to my mind all of them can only be solved uh, in common um they're collective problems they're problems that need collective action so um that's another reason why we have to think um um collectively but also i just think it enriches your life if you if you if you pay attention to to people who are perhaps less fortunate than you or who experience the, the world in a completely different way i think it just it just enriches your life it just makes it makes your life a little bit more, more complex and 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 uh, sophisticated um so there's i mean a classic example is coming to new zealand right I mean, this is a, 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 a neoliberal multicultural society right there's so many, auckland is a super city in the sense that london's a super city because it's got such a high number of languages that are spoken um but importantly this this place is also bicultural so it's the founding document um 1840 treaty of waitangi that is a contract between what agreement between the pakeha who were the settlers and and maori and these are two completely different world views and you know i'm trying to learn more about the the the, the maori side of of new zealand because it is so rich you know um pakeha culture is not that interesting really here it's much much like any other place um but maori culture is very very rich philosophically very interesting um radically different view of the world um different sets of concepts so i don't you know i don't really understand why you wouldn't want to learn all that sort of stuff why you wouldn't enrich your, enrich yourself by you know learning these different ways of of seeing things and understanding things and speaking um so yeah that's 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 the other side for me although in the book i say the other side of course is the demos rather than the idios the the, the demos is the sort of the public and the commons um so i think you know i'm looking for a reengagement of social democracy uh where we think socially and people actively participate in decision making um because basically we're living in a a plutocratic aristocracy that's what we have at the moment and it's uh, we're heading towards hunger games aren't we that's where we're going <laughs> that's where we're that going. ended well <laughs> <laughs> yeah well no, actually I, thought, I think i thought that was a great film actually because of the way it just showed you know that it showed our trajectory showed so so clearly you know oh it was fun yeah a lot of fun the hunger games mm. i mean yeah i mean the idea of just sort of uh, i mean media uh, it was you know the, the games themselves were a form of the sort of consumption or a media consumption yeah so celebrity and 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 um um that sort of reality tv wasn't it 
Yeah, I think that brings us uh, makes a nice segue to our next uh, theme, uh, okay. which is uh, war, I guess, <laughs> which is something that you have uh, you focus a lot on, and um, I'm really yeah. interested in one of your articles, which was. Uh, in the Journal of Sociology, uh, mm. sorry, I, the the title escapes me. It's on algorithms and drones. I think, I think it's called the explication of the social. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Um, so let's I just let's talk about um, th- this idea of drones and drone warfare. Like, well, mm. firstly, what 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 is a drone? I mean, in a very basic sense, um, a, a drone is is in well, in terms of war, it's a it's an unmanned an unmanned vehicle. And they can either be on the ground or on here in the air. The ones we know tend to be in the air. So they um, to think of a drone as a single piece of kit, though, or a single tool is a problem because really the drone is an apparatus. I think that's the only way to think of a drone. So you've got the actual thing that flies in the air, which is loaded up with cameras and computers, and that feeds back into a a computer system on the ground that involves loads of screens and satellites and cables and algorithms. And then that is also monitored by a set of people who are part of a whole military system. So, you know, um, to think of a drone as just something that flies and watches, uh, I don't think is, is right. We need to think of it as a, as a, Entire apparatus of right. Yes, yeah, so drones are part of a broader network, perhaps. Yeah, uh, of, of human and technical, legal. You know, you'd have to do a sort of even a simple kind of actor network theory is the only way to. You know, an actor network is the only way to think of the drone. I think all the different elements that go into. Um, and what? And what uh, and what like sort of fascinates you about this? Because I've seen lots of sort of thinkers trying to think through the implications of what drone warfare, mm. as it represents, as it represents a mutation of, um, I guess, war activities. Uh, is there metaphysical implications to it? I mean, I, I see a lot of people saying that drones are a type of omniscience. You know, you know, they're all seeing, all watching, surveillance. Yeah, I think, you know, if you if you if you pan out from the drone apparatus, what you see is a, a broader social, socio-technical shift towards uh, the algorithm and the use of algorithms. And so that would be the big metaphysical issue. That's the relationship between um, human and machine um, and the role of, of, of the technical um, where algorithms are um, superseding the human in so many areas, uh, and of course, there's the, the big one of the big debates around now is this is this the idea of the rise of the robots, um, right? And not not in a kind of necessarily a Terminator sense, although people do freak out about that. That's a sort of popular <laughs> popular image. Um, in a much more quotidian sense of of uh, factories Jobs. full of robots, yeah. Um, you know, I my my job probably won't exist in the future because there'll be an algorithm that can read books and create lectures and lecture slides from its ability to read books, and then those a books, hologram of Neil uh, Neil Curtis, yeah, yeah, and those books will be written by uh, by algorithms as well, you know. So um, yeah, I was yeah, sorry, go on. No, it's just so I think so. That's that's the big picture. That's what sort of got me writing that drone article because I was interested in in the rise of of algorithms, really. Um, and, a, and a really good example within the drone culture and the drone apparatus was. Uh, I think this practice has been stopped, but there was a a period where the algorithms themselves were actually making the decisions to who to kill. So so they would okay. They they would scan and monitor and watch the behaviour. So normally, as I understand it, somebody would be targeted for surveillance as being suspicious, right? And it would go through a sort of a human system. And okay, let's watch this person. But the algorithm started to throw up who was the suspicious person, and therefore 
assigning a possible target. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I mean, I think the Obama administration, President Obama's administration, mm. they 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 led the ground for this, didn't they? Because they, yeah. they tried to redefine what combatant meant. I mean, it was inclusive of all military or males. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was the drone president, so um, so 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 that's that that was the metaphysical issue, I suppose. That 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 I when I was asked to write something for that for that issue. Um, that's where I went because I was I was quite interested in in algorithms. I was thinking about doing a project on algorithmic life, or I was going to. I like the idea of having a book on algorithms um, with rhythm spelled as in rhythm, as in beat. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, and look at the way in which um, algorithms were kind of managing patterns of behavior and creating certain types of flows and certain types of temporalities and certain types of beats across in fact that's quite a nice idea i might go back to that it was um yeah but algorithm uh, algorithms are now you know even beyond drones which is of you know which, which be, I, I presume began for military reasons or um yeah, yeah. it's you know it's they're everywhere they're in you know your your amazon ordering your social media profile your communications and they are. I think. I think the claim you're making is that these algorithms are transforming everyday life. Yes, and we're increasingly um, assigning more and more tasks to them, which is what we do with technology, right? Technology mm. is just a process of assigning a task to a machine. Um, it always has been, but I mean, the problem with algorithms is. It's not that the algorithms themselves are a problem, right? An algorithm is not a problem. I mean, technically, some people would 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 argue against this, but you could you could say that a, a recipe for a cake is an algorithm, right? Right. So it's a set of it's a set of, it's a set of procedures or a set of inputs to produce an output, right? So that's what an algorithm does. It takes a, takes a, a whole load of inputs to create a certain type of an output. And it's written in order to produce the output. So you could you could take a recipe for cake as an algorithm. Although, as I say, technically, some people would say that's not specifically an algorithm. So algorithms themselves are not the problem. The problem is, and we mustn't be techno-determinist or technophobic about this, the problem is always humans. And the problem is always human society. So we need to come back to thinking systemically about the socio-political economic system that produces the algorithms as they are, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Um, These, so The algorithms are the product of... We ask algorithms to do certain things because we have organized ourselves as a society to do certain things, right? If we organize ourselves in a different way, algorithms can help us do other things, right? So algorithms themselves are not the problem. It's the humans who are writing them in the context of a socioeconomic system that wants particular things to happen. So, um, I mean, if we lived in a completely different world where robots were running everything, we might have a system in which in order to maintain the system you know we have a really um expanded understanding of universal basic income right so all the robots are doing all the work so we have a uh we organize ourselves to so that the whatever wealth is produced by those robots comes back to us as a universal basic income which allows us to care for each other uh be creative be experimental in our lives. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Um, um, it it well, need not I be mean, a dystopia, right? It could be a utopia. It's just it's just how we organise ourselves. It comes back to that question all the time. It's not an algorithmic problem. I mean, yeah. the, the the entire economy is an algorithm. At the moment, the algorithm is set. Society is organised to produce an output, which is to maximise wealth for those at the top. So the, our entire society is an algorithm. We need to rewrite that algorithm so that 
it, it distributes things. Uh, yeah, I guess. Way, I, you know? Yeah, I guess the. Um, I mean, with the example of algorithms and drones, uh, I think one of the things that always strikes me about them is that you know, drones are presented at least as a humane type of warfare. That's the mutation that they're that mm. they're that, that they're offering in in warfare. That they offer uh, um, a risk free or at least a diminished sense of risk uh, mm. in in warfare. And I guess you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that that's not the type of uh, you know that's not that's they're not the algorithms we want. You know, we want risk, we want contingency, we want uh, the opportunity to be creative. Um, yeah, in a in a sense, if if yeah, we need to organise our, ourselves to allow allow that certainly. Um, but going back to director drones, of course, I mean they're only more humane for the for the people that are are, um, are guiding the apparatus, you know. <laughs> Quite right, there yeah. There isn't a pilot in there to get shot down. Um, yeah, I mean, have not... you seen the? Um, there's a quite a good movie about this. It's, I think it's got Ethan Hawke in it. It's the uh, the Good Kill, I think it's called. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Well, I think uh, it's, it's it portrays the um, sort of the ill effects of uh, uh, of drone pilots who are anesthetized to um, the suffering and what they cause. Well, yeah, the problem. One of the problems with PTSD for those kind of pilots is, um, at least from some of the testimonies, is um, it actually creates new forms of intimacy. So it's supposed to be the extreme end of the distance of, of warfare, right, that was produced first of all by muskets and, and rifles and, and by, you know, longer range guns. So it's supposed to put people at a distance and therefore make them less exposed to risk as in the people who are operating the drones but what some of them say is they get to spend so much time with the people they're about to kill because they watch them every day they watch them sending their kids off to school or they watch them putting the water the, the washing out right they watch them kicking a football and they watch them cooking and they watch them sitting down and talking and drinking tea and right yeah, and so so they they become incredibly um, it, it becomes an incredibly intimate experience. And again, going back to Heidegger, Heidegger's idea that that, that um, he, under, he he refuses the idea of a kind of geometric or geographic space in terms of distance, and he talks about space in terms of concern. So, you know, you're a you're a long way from me physically at the moment, but because I'm preoccupied with talking to you, phenomenologically you're closer, right? Right. You're closer to me than the, the chair is that sat in the room that I'm paying no attention to. And so, you know, phenomenologically you, you create these these moments of intimacy and it's it's very hard. So, you know, they leave the their their the drone apparatus and go and pick up some ice cream or some donuts to take home to their kids and they start doing their version of what they've just watched the targets do for the last two weeks and they've just um, killed them and that I think that creates all kinds of disturbances um, for operators but they're still indiscriminate you know they still kill people that didn't need to be killed um, you know, it's part of this kind of ideology of um, precision strikes and all that, and that doesn't happen. I mean, a, a former student of mine, MA student, brilliant, brilliant woman who's doing a PhD over in Melbourne now, um, Alex Edney Brown, her name is. She's just been over to Afghanistan, and she's just produced a uh, a set of testimonies from people there about what it's like to live under drones, um, which is on her blog, uh, which is. Um, quite amazing to see and so what i was trying to say in the in the in the article was i was trying to get away from this idea that they you know but old warfare attacks the environment right industrial warfare from particularly the second world war where you attack an environment you don't just attack the enemy's army you attack the environment in which the population lives right um and that was seen as indiscriminate and in, inhumane so you go so 
drones you know you not only lose you don't you don't lose your own soldiers and you only kill the people you're supposed to be killing that's the idea but what i was saying in the article with the the title the explication of the social is that what drones do is they make the social life of people who live under drones explicit that that becomes the target so they may end up killing people or destroying houses or whatever but what they're targeting is the everyday life of people who they monitor through their patterns of behavior, their movements through space, their communications through the internet, smartphones, and so on, right? So, so it becomes not, a primo facie attack on the social. And it's still, yeah, it's still an attack on the environment, right? So everybody lives constantly anxious about their movement. So the idea, if you went, you know, the idea, how do you, how do you go to a funeral when the algorithm has been coded to recognize any gathering of people as uh, a signifier of hostile intent? Right? And, and I find it hard to imagine the difficulties of trying to live in an environment like that, right? where you're having to think constantly about how your movements, your communications, might be read as a as a as a signifier of 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 pre presurgence right a, a sort of a pre-insurgency and therefore you're going to be bombed right um so i was trying in that article i was trying to sort of break down that myth that drones don't target the environment i think they do it's just a it's just a social environment that's targeted as well as blowing up houses and hospitals and stuff so that's that's what i was after with that okay so um that brings us to our next theme um and this is your more recent work and it's uh, i think it's it's still clearly linked um your last book in 2016 uh, was uh, on superheroes and sovereignty and i mean i guess yeah it's, it seems like a natural progression to me like to talk about from drones to the idea of sovereignty um mm, absolutely. yeah so um well let's start there for for you neil uh superheroes Tell us about sovereignty. Um, so could you maybe unpick that a little bit? Um, well, if the mark of a of a sovereign would be the say the declaration of a state of emergency, right? The sovereign has the power to declare states of emergency. Um, superheroes live in a perpetual state of emergency. The superhero universe is one that's permanently under attack. So the superhero universe is a permanent state of emergency. So um, that's that's the most obvious way. I suppose the second thing would be they're also uh, figures of authority. Um, they are figures that that sort of have a monopoly on violence, which was would be Weber's understanding of of um, of sovereignty. So there's that close link between sovereigns and violence and the law. And I was very interested in exploring that relationship between law and violence. Um, so the first definition about the state of emergency, that's more like Carl Schmitt's definition of, of sovereignty, as in the sovereign is the person who decides um, when the law does not apply. Right? It's not normally we think of you go back to uh, Baudin, and that's about the sovereign is the person who applies the law and creates the law, right? Um, Schmidt twisted that round and said, actually, the, the mark of the sovereign is the person who suspends the law, the person who has the power to say, okay, this is the point in time and space where the law no longer applies um, and produce, produces a, a state of emergency. Um, and in in and that's often that often produces the, the the side effect of the creation of a friend and enemy, right? The sovereign is often um, uh, an, an an entity that decides who is friend and who is enemy. And of course, that idea of friend and enemy is it runs all the way through um, superhero universes. So um, those are sort of some of the most obvious ways, I think, in which in which the concept of sovereignty applies. Um, but for, for, for me, I think it was the sort of 
the law and the law and violence. I mean, people think about superheroes all the time as vigilantes, and in some respects they are, in some respects they're not. And the vigilante is somebody outside the law, right? So it's a kind of extra legal position where somebody takes the law into their own hands, right? And they're sort of the, the vigilante is more like an anti-hero, right? Not quite a villain. Perhaps motivated by good and motivated by a sense of justice. But I don't think that really gets to the heart of what superheroes are about. And that's why I wanted to think of them as sovereigns, because when you think of them as sovereigns, the, the law does not become extra legal. Sorry, the violence does not become extra legal. The violence is actually a key component of the law itself, because the sovereign has power over life and death, has power over law and violence. Um, has the ability to spend to suspend the law, right? So the the extra legal, when you declare the state of emergency, so you say okay, normal laws don't apply anymore. That idea of the extra legal is actually internal to sovereignty itself, which is kind of Schmidt's position, but also then later Agamben's position when he wrote Homo Zeka. So thinking of superheroes in terms of vigilantes doesn't quite understand the relationship between law and violence. It, it sort of lets law off. It makes law seem like it's peaceful and orderly and good. And then you have this extra legal violence that's outside. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, so many of the superheroes, they end yeah. up entangled in, with the law. Or they they are sort of very, very liminal figures, mm. you know, who, who, uh, yeah. who sort of exist on the threshold of uh, the just and uh, I suppose the non-just. Hmm. Yeah, they do. Um, Batman's the sort of classic example of that, of course. Um, he's connected to Commissioner Gordon and the whole kind of police apparatus. I mean, he's a he's a, a bit of a wet dream for right wingers because he's sort of. Um, I mean, I've actually read articles by people on the right who say Batman's a, a great example of why kind of public justice doesn't work. <laughs> you know, in, you need a kind of private sector of justice. Well, so his superpowers is uh, uh, immense, infinite wealth. His, well, yeah, that's well, that is literally his superpower, right? He has no, he has, he has no superpowers. Um, I mean, he's good at fighting. He's good at, you know, he has martial arts. He's got skills, some cool tech. <laughs> but, he, but that all that is all rooted in his only superpower, which is vast amounts of capital same as iron man iron man and batman have no superpowers i mean unless you say iron man's intelligence is a superpower and or batman's intelligence or detective skills are a superpower but they have, they have no superpowers apart from vast pools of um, would you ca would would you so. would you didn't categorize them even as superheroes because you think of like Superman as uh, you know he's some you know he's he's, he's quasi omnipotent you know he's got some special powers yeah yeah I think there's a you know there's a gradation of 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 superheroes um, I mean most uh, some superheroes are just superheroes because they they live in a superhero context right. Um, there's plenty of people like that. But I suppose they qualify as superheroes because they have, you know, in terms of Bruce Wayne, he has superhuman abilities to uh, uh, deduction and detection, I suppose. And Tony Stark has superhuman abilities at, at creating tech. So there is some element of the, of the super in them, right? There. They are, they 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 have exaggerated human attributes, but they don't have superpowers in the sense that that Superman has, right? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a but 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 Tony starts a really interesting thing because he always gets caught up in that that human that friend friend and enemy distinction. A lot of his stories are about his tech. That's supposed to be kind of protecting everybody, getting into the hands of the bad guys, and the bad guys come and smash everybody, right? So it's a, it's Tony Stark and Iron Man is a great example of Deridian autoimmunity um, and the sort of instability of the friend-enemy distinction 
right? Where what, what you thought was the friend comes back as the enemy or, or what you present as the enemy is really the friend. Um, and that, that goes all the way through superhero books as a constant indistinction between the two. Um, there's a kind of good and there's an evil, but there's a, a grey realm in the middle and, and superheroes often operate in that grey realm, much like the state of emergency itself. So what do you, in terms of that state of emergency then, I mean, is is that what explains, I mean, the current, as I see it at least, current fascination with superheroes, the multitude of superheroes in movies, streaming and media and culture? Um. Yeah, I think I think we always want heroes to save us, you know, and they're the sort of the latest cinematic heroes that save us. I think at the moment as well, we also have a kind of uh, kind of nihilistic fascination with world destruction. Right? There's so many blockbuster films at the moment that contain complete and utter destruction of everything. Right? So the current um, action movies are nearly always disaster movies as well. Um, so I think culturally we're at, we're at that point where we're constantly thinking about planetary catastrophe, either through war or environmental degradation or the collapse of the economic system because it's so unstable. So I think we're fascinated by seeing images of, of world destruction and also uh, superheroes that come to save us. So it's kind of a yearning uh, for the mythic, is it? Uh, I think it is to some extent. To some extent, it's those old, old stories. And of course, superheroes are rooted in the mythic. You know, they're rooted in those old, those old stories. I mean, so many Marvel and DC characters are actually stolen from old pantheons. You know, uh, Thor and Hercules, and even Wonder Woman, even though she wasn't stolen. Um, she belongs to that that old pantheon, um, but I think also just from a cultural studies perspective, we, we, superheroes are ubiquitous. They've been around for so long. Probably most most uh, boys, um, at least at my age, had some kind of superhero um, paraphernalia in their bedroom at some point. Right? I think that I think the films give people an easy way into comics. Because you can't get into the comics. The comics is the comic universes now are such sort of complicated universes that people find it hard to get into the comics. Because even when you start a new story, you sort of seem to need to know so much about the universes to understand it. I think the films give people an easy way in, and yeah, Marvel are building their own cinematic universe. So. Um, uh, so that I think that's what's interesting. About yeah, it. I mean, well, one, uh, I've just got a couple of more questions for you. Uh, then on on that, um, um, I I mean, you talked about Batman being, you know, sort of the archetypal conservative uh, superhero. Uh, yeah. I mean, is it? Do you think? Uh, I mean, well, I know you think this. I mean, you think that there is a, a very very progressive dimension in uh, representations of superhero also. Yeah, well, Superman was originally a socialist. That's what people forget. He was kind of turned into the arch, arch Tory. Oh, I, d I did not know that. Um, yeah, um, get yourself a copy of the f of the first volume of um, Superman stories. Um, there's a really nice one. Um, Probably the first year of Superman stories, he he has one where he's trying to stop um, corporal punishment in prisons. So there's this whole story about where he's trying to convince people that um, whipping prisoners is not a good idea. Um, so that's his mission in that one. Another one, another great one, is where he um, he's concerned about the welfare of, of, of miners, as in people who dig coal. So he kidnaps a mine owner, takes him down into the mine, collapses the mine <laughs> in order to show the mine owner how dangerous the working conditions are. And then, of course, rescues him and the mine owner sort of promises to improve conditions. Um, there's one where he destroys, he literally kind of the quite a sort of Marxist image of taking over the means of production. He draw, destroys a car factory because they're cutting corners. Um, 
on safety to try and increase their profits and people are driving around in dangerous cars. So he just decides he's going to stop, put a stop to that and destroy the factory. Um, so, you know, Superman, the first superhero, was actually a social justice warrior. And I know lots of people on the right who read superheroes um, use the social justice warrior as a as a pejorative term and an insult, and they constantly get annoyed by changes to characters if they if they seem to be sort of progressive or liberal changes to a character. But you know they're rooted in 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 social justice warriors. Um, Wonder Woman was Wonder Woman's the most extraordinary uh, character within within the superhero universes. She's ultimate. She's amazing, and she had the most amazing mission. Um, you know, she was written by um, uh, uh, Marston, who who had very strong connections to um, uh, the suffragist movement in a, in America. His his wife was a, um, a suffragist, and and um, and the, the women of the time regularly referred to themselves as Amazons. Right, the women had sort of appropriated this myth from from the Greek. The Greek world about these strong independent women and they and they you know in the 1920s and 30s American feminists were referring to themselves as Amazons and so he, he created this 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 figure um, uh, this powerful image of a of a woman and of course the original story he's she's created from clay by her mother Hippolyta and then animated by uh, two of the Greek goddesses um, Athena and Artemis I think so she's brought to life from clay. And what's interesting about that is that Marston's mistress was the um, the niece of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was the woman who's, who created Planned Parenthood in America. Right. Yeah. So his mistress, who also lived with him and his wife, they lived as a threesome in a house. Um, he lived with a number of women, actually. It was quite interesting. So that creation of the woman that the hero from clay created by women without any men involved was a very stark and bold statement about reproductive rights um, that linked to Planned Parenthood. So her origin was incredibly radical. And of course they've changed that in the comics in 2012. Um, all the blokes decided they were going to change it and they made as Zeus, her father, so she was she was created out of a sort of heterosexual. Ah, uh, so for, she uh, a distinct move from the material from the uh, material to the spiritual. Well, yes, but a distinct move from the matriarchal to the Quite, patriarchal, yeah. right? So where she had no father, she was now given a father, and she was the sort of accidental product of that sexual relationship, right? So it went from being matriarchal to patriarchal. And also a sort of side effect of that sort of heteronormative relationship, whereas whereas before it had been a deliberate act by her mother, fully in control of reproduction. Do you see what I mean? It wasn't a byproduct of of a heteronormative act. And also, of course, that meant that her mother had then been made a liar for all those years. Her mother had lied about it. So it was the most terrible thing to do to Wonder Woman. And the saddest thing about the film, although I quite enjoyed the film, was the fact that, that now that change to her origin has been locked into the film, um, and it really, really annoyed me. And the whole change in 2012 really annoyed me. But so, Wonder Woman was also a social justice warrior in origin. She was about women's rights, women's reproductive rights. Um, um, so you know, out of that trilogy of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Only one of them is even suggestive of that kind of vigilante motif, right? Which is which is Batman, um, you know. So, but he, even he can be read progressively in nineteen nineteen thirty nine, you know, as as a as an attempt by jewish writer to sort of visualize himself as having whatever kind of access he wants to the city you know so 
from a cultural studies perspective, you could you can take some really interesting interpretations of Batman. So I think this idea that they're just vigilantes is 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 totally mistaken. It's true in lots of instances, but it's also totally mistaken to just reduce everything to that. Okay. Now, um, one question I have to ask you is: um, Did you know? I mean, uh, that the uh, I think is it this uh, the creator of Wonder Woman uh, is also, and correct me if I'm wrong, the creator of the lie detector test. Is that true? Um, whether it's true or not, um, he, he certainly claimed it was. Um, he did work on on that and and yes it, it is kind of popularly accepted that he was the person who invented the the light detector which is which is why wonder woman um when she ties people up in her lasso um they have to speak the, the truth. lasso of truth of course yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah he was a psychologist he's a really fascinating man really um, very bohemian, um, had these amazing relationships with lots of women, I think. Um, but of course, the tying up as well, his, his psychology about Wonder Woman was that he, he in his, his academic writings on psychology, he genuinely believed um, there was a link between sexual desire and politics, right? This is a sort of thing that's sort of regular in a lot of sort of Freudian type of psychoanalysis. Um, that sexual desire plays an important role in in, in social behaviours, and he argued that one of the reasons why the world is so messed up is because it's run by men, and men's men are brought up to take sexual pleasure from domination, which is why we live in such a sort of tyr tyrannical, authoritarian world. And he said that women, by contrast, are brought up to take pleasure in both domination and submission. And what the world needs is is for people to learn the pleasures of submission. So Wonder Woman, he called her his love leader. She was supposed to go out and teach people about the pleasures of submission, which is why there's so much um, bondage iconography in those early comics, right, from 1941 through to about 47. She's constantly tying people up and being tied up herself and spanking and paddling and all kinds of things to people. Um because he genuinely believed that that the world was ruled by sadism and what we actually needed was a politics of masochism, you know. Um, and if you take, say, Deleuze's distinction between sadism and masochism, he says there shouldn't be a hyphen between sadism and masochism because they're two completely different things. Whereas sadism is about absolute control and the whole point is that the person you're being sadistic to do to has no input in that relationship. Whereas masochism is the exact opposite. It's about a contract between two people about how the person who wants to be dominated, for example, um, wants the scene to play out. So it's, a, so it's a contract between two people. And strangely enough, the person that's been dominated in that situation is actually in charge of the, of the contract, right? That's the person that instigates the relationship so it's a cooperative um relationship so so wonder woman aside from all the sort of gender politics is it, also a motif for his psychoanalytic theories about sexual desire and politics so um hence all the sadomasochism which is not just a sort of you know you know uh, to try to sort of um titillate male readers it, 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 for him it had a genuine philosophical purpose so you will you will not find a more radical uh superhero ever okay which is why she's the best she's the best <laughs> uh, I, th I think uh that's a really good place to, to to round it up. I have one last quick question. Well, I'm not I'm not sure where we could go after that. <laughs> she is the best. <laughs> um, I've just one last question. Um, in t uh, I'm just wondering, yeah. uh, just for the listeners, um, is is there anything that you're reading or listening to? I know you said you've been listening to some grime. Is there anything that you would recommend that would uh, help people um, uh, understand the the themes that you've been talking about today? Um, yeah, what am I, am I, I'm reading a, a book by, um, 
what's his name? It's a, it's a novel called It Can't Happen Here, which oh. was written in 1939. Um, Spencer, is it Spencer? Oh, sorry, my mind's gone blank. But that's a fascinating take on the rise of fascism in in America, you know, written in 1939. Um, I'm also reading, just started reading a nice little book on um, on robots, actually, uh, called Edison's Eve um, by G- Gabby Wood. Oh, OK, yeah. That's a nice little book. Um, just finished reading Cernicek and Williams' book, Inventing the Future, which is also about algorithms and and robots and uh, alternative societies so and uh, reading a um, a comic long form comic um, about uh, about Singapore at the moment it just won the uh, Eisner Awards um, Charlie Chan Hoxai I think it's called it's the most amazing book where this guy's created this fictional character which is this so a cartoonist creates a fictional character of a cartoonist and he has created all of his work that doesn't actually exist but he uses that he does so he does this biography of this non-existent cartoonist to tell a political history of imperial and post-imperial singapore and while he's doing it he borrows loads of styles from actually existing cartoonists to tell the story fantastic it's why it's why comics are so good so that's sort of what i'm reading on it like a car bonnet neil uh (laughs) uh, thank you very much for being with us neil okay thank you for talking Thank you for listening to the Well, Team Chill is not governed by a paragraph. With license to your creative commons, you can follow, follow us on iTunes or your broadcast cast app. Speak soon.